0: California prides itself in being a beacon of progress, a place that nurtures innovation from the creativity of Silicon Valley to forward-thinking activists fighting for social change. Or as historian and California State Librarian Kevin Starr once put it, to many, California is the, quote, cutting edge of the American dream. But the seeming advancements that led to the very creation of California as a U.S. state are rooted in practices of settler colonialism responsible for ongoing indigenous land and water dispossession. It's a reality we've been investigating in this series as we examine the land back movement. It's a concept and a practice that among other things, helps us think about the limitations and the failings of how we currently manage our greatest natural resources. Or in other words,
1: When we ask questions about land back, you gotta ask the question, who was here first? Who took care of this? You have a people who don't own their land, but have all of the knowledge to keep it healthy. So you have all of these unethical and awful power imbalances that exist, and you gotta look around and say, this system is not working.
0: So in this episode, we'll rethink notions of progress through a land back lens, Specifically, we'll examine how indigenous futurism shows us that the promise of land back isn't only in returning land to indigenous peoples. It's also about looking to indigenous technologies and ways of knowing that haven't just stewarded the land since time immemorial, but can sustain environments for future generations to come. I'm Caroline Collins, and this is the CalAc Roots Podcast. Calac Roots is unearthing stories about important moments in the history of California farming to shed light on current issues in agriculture. This is the third episode in a multi part series which focuses on the land back movement. This series is part of a new interview format we're calling the Well. Think of the well as an audio version of a gathering place, like a barbershop, a kitchen table, a front porch, a watering hole, or a well. Where each episode we have an in-depth conversation with the scholars, artists, organizers, growers, and community members who are making an impact on how we view and interact with the natural world in California. Basically, we're talking to dope people who are doing dope things. In our last Well Conversation, we spoke with Nicole Salaya, co-executive director at Food Link for Tulare County. That discussion dove into how ally organizations across the state can work to support land back efforts. This third and final episode of the series now turns to the relationship of the land back movement to long histories of indigenous ways of knowing and doing. This episode features my recent conversation with Dr. Kale LuFox. Fox, Dr. Fox, who is Kanaka or native Hawaiian, is an assistant professor at University of California, San Diego, and is affiliated with the Department of Anthropology, the Global Health Program, the Holy Julu Data Science Institute, the Climate Action Lab, and he's the co-founder and co-director of the Indigenous Futures Institute. Dr. Fox holds a PhD in genome sciences from the University of Washington, Seattle, and his multidisciplinary research interests include genome sequencing, genome engineering, computational biology, evolutionary genetics, paleogenetics, and indigenizing biomedical research. Dr. Fox's background in Hawaii, his experience in genomics and his commitment to indigenizing research is playing a pivotal role in pushing the boundaries of how scientists tackle contemporary challenges from health disparities to wildfires and climate change, including work right here in California. I joined Dr. Fox in the new lab space of the Indigenous Futures Institute at UC San Diego for our talk, where in full disclosure, I'm also an affiliate. So let's jump into the conversation, where right from the bat, Dr. Fox explained the importance of communities being able to access and use this new space.
1: Maybe that's part of it. That's part of this exact conversation. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do we get our communities to feel comfortable enough Mm -hmm. to come into these spaces? Yeah. You know, put up more of their art on the walls. Yeah.
0: Well, let's talk about that before we do. What's your name? Who are you? you be
1: <laughs> on here you want me to say yeah
0: that?
1: just go ahead and say. oh i'm kayla fox i'm an assistant professor at ucsd and i am the co-founder and co-director of the indigenous futures institute
0: that's a big mouthful so like
1: mm, what led you
0: to that no i'm just saying that's a lot assistant professor co-founders oh, mm. co-directors like how did you get to this moment in your life
1: oh man that is a lot to understand, <laughs> as the millennial say I, uh, well, as you know, because you know my family, my family is from the Big Island, and we are from a specific area there. Just for all of our listeners, my background is in genome sciences, but we do a lot more now than that. And genome sciences is basically just genetics, but all of the technologies that allow us to take something that's, you know, analog in nature, and digitize it and, and kind of mine that data and information. So like, how do you go from one system to the other? And I think that being from Hawaii and having a lot of variables that kind of control the way you think about biodiversity, for example, or management of land, soil health, human health, agriculture, Invasive species, all of those things. Really, really, Hawaii and the Big Island specifically is a really special place because where we're from is probably one of the most remote places in the world. Our ancestors got there probably between 1,000 and 2,000 years ago using boats, traditional knowledge systems, all kinds of incredible science was at hand every day. But when you get there, you'll notice that it also has 11 out of 13 biomes on planet Earth. So it's one of the most biologically diverse places on planet Earth. You know, you get snow on top of Mauna Kea. You have incredible reef systems. We have rainforests, deserts, active volcanoes, and the list goes on. And so that is also home to a lot of biodiversity in terms of insects and soil and bacteria and trees, flora, fauna, all of this fungi. And then you have people making observations over time that kind of gets integrated into the way we view the world. So it's hard not to appreciate biology. If you grow up in a place like that, then on top of that, you throw in some other variables in the equation, right? It's also the invasive species capital of the world. So how does that happen? It happens to be the hotbed for Monsanto and the development of GMOs and this kind of area where people will take colonial perspectives, imperial perspectives and values in order to harm our ecosystem by making it a test bed for all of these things. So that is not limited to making it an oil depot for Red Hill and Iea And what's going on there with how that's poisoning our aquifers in Oahu or the tension that exists on top of Mauna Kea with the development of the 30 meter telescope and how our people don't want it there. And then you have the military itself detonating bombs, destroying our islands, access to fresh water, stealing our land. And that really informs your positions. And then let's throw in some tourism on top, too, in terms of the way that we optimize the tourism industry for exponential growth and profit. So it's a complex place for us when we think about what's the influence and impact of science? and What is military futurism there? What is a colonial future? And then what is an indigenous future? What is the future that our ancestors had been cultivating over time?
0: So... A lot of what you said kind of relates to the larger theme of this particular mm. interview series, thinking about Landback. One, mm. how do you define Landback? And do you think there's a strong relationship to Land Back themes and academia and what's taking place at the university?
1: I would say so again, complicated, but not that complicated, right? When people say Land back generally speaking they're talking about the unfortunate effects of colonial violence imperialism and settler colonialism and that's painfully obvious to people in hawaii so if you're like me and you're native hawaiian you're kanaka Maoli, you look around and you ask who are your neighbors who actually owns land we have one percent of our people own land that's a new concept that idea became a popular idea because of the cartesian grid or at some level that was a way to create a technological division of land that's not really how land exists like if you go to an island and we were to look at the mathematics of it the geometry of the ways to optimize it for ag or whatever a lot of those shapes don't fit into a grid. (laughs) So that's like a foreign concept. That's actually a way for you to divide it up into a commodity and sell it and do things that are not helpful, like introduce cattle at some level or monoculture and all these things that become harmful later on, you know, industrial, ag, et cetera. So when we look at it and we ask questions about land back, you gotta ask the question, who was here first? Who took care of this? Who knows every stone, every piece of moss, every wind system, every raindrop, every cloud? They know what to expect because of these knowledge systems and these invisible indigenous technologies. And when I say invisible, I mean mostly invisible to white people. Because we understand them, they're predictable, they're observations. We know that land better than anyone else on planet Earth. And when you look at the statistics and they say 80% of the world's biodiversity is shepherded by or guarded by or cultivated or facilitated by indigenous people. And indigenous people only occupy 5% of the world population. What does that tell you about how we treat land, about what our knowledge systems are, about what the potential is? You have a people who don't own their land, but have all of the knowledge to keep it healthy. Meanwhile, you allocate $730 billion towards the Department of Defense budget so that the military can be the number one consumer of fossil fuels and the number one producer of greenhouse gases. You have places like Guam where one third of the Aina, the land, is occupied by the U.S. military. So you have all of these unethical and awful power imbalances that exist. And then you look at the way we've disconnected our health from the health of the land, the way that we've allowed really unethical corporations to occupy the space of industrial agriculture. And you got to look around and say this system is not working. It's not sustainable.
0: So, you know, mm-hmm. Calag Groups Roots has a big yeah. focus on, on California. Mm-hmm. So how have you seen some of these same themes play out of unethical practices or disregard of indigenous knowledge and ways of being play out either in your academic life or academic spaces or the actual physical land that the university sits upon? Is that something that you've seen in your tenure as an assistant professor or even a grad researcher in the work that you do?
1: Yeah, you know, we live in California now. I'm a professor here in Southern California. We work in La Jolla, which is Kumeyaay land. And we know that there is an unequitable relationship between our university, which is a land land trust-related university, and the indigenous community, which was here first. And we actually know that the land in which this university is built is partially, and in some places, um, built on a massive burial ground for those people. And if anyone has ever been to Black's Beach, which is one of my favorite surf spots here, we know what is and whose ancestors are buried and who was there first and how that land was acquired. I mean, everyone has the receipts, literally the receipts. And you know what was built and you know what was, uh, whose ancestors were excavated, um, namely at the, our chancellor's house, pretty Koshla. This isn't news, people. This is broken news. There was a, uh, a major, I believe it went all the way up to the Supreme Court and got kicked down in 2014. landmark kind of historical case which the Kumi'an nation won. They won this case and they won the repatriation of their ancestors. And all of that is still ongoing. All of that, all of those relationships and who has title to land. And when I look around on this campus, I see little speckles of indigeneity. I do not see very much of homage to that history, that community or honest efforts to broker relationships between our indigenous people and our indigenous communities in our campus i see a lot of capitalism i see a lot of uh, optimization of the processes procedures and and educational trajectory here that caters towards exponential growth and profit and that's not what education and universities are supposed to cultivate they're supposed to cultivate innovation they're supposed to cultivate brilliance community genius What, to
0: you, what do you think an honest effort towards repatriation would would look like and feel like on campus?
1: Easy land back phenomenon. Our chancellor makes, I don't know how much money. He should pack up his belongings, put them in a U-Haul, find himself another home, he can stay in La Jolla, and that home should be repatriated to the Kumeyaay nation and turned into whatever they deem fit. If they want it to be a community center, fine. They want it to be completely deconstructed and find new ways to care after their ancestors, then they can do that. But I would I would really like to see that land change hands.
0: So we're sitting in a spot called the Indigenous Futures Institute. We've been talking about historical facts mm-hmm. that can help us better understand. Um, the crisis we're in right now of of, um, who occupies land and how and for what reasons. So what does it mean to look to the future on these kinds of topics? Who is Indigenous Futures Institute? Why did you co-found it? What is it that y'all are about? What what kind of futures are you working toward?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And it seems like it's simple, but it's not. So I'll just kind of like step into what I mean. When we talk about indigenous futurism it's like right now let's just choose certain tools that represent our future if you were to like poll people and ask them which technologies do they have the most uh, hesitance around or offer the most value in terms of like shaping the future what like philosophers would call like a long-termist view if you believe that ai is the future right that AI is going to solve our problems, or that genome editing is going to solve our problems, or that remote sensing is going to solve our problems, um, and I could continue with all these new cutting-edge technologies, right? AI is probably the most polarizing because people fear that something like that may not want to keep humanity around given the the state of our planet and how humans treat planet Earth, right?
0: Yeah, we've all seen Terminator.
1: Yeah, we have. <laughs> Skynet, baby. So. Who is writing individual lines or licks code that that's the actual data architecture for that? Where are they from? What's their philosophy? How many actual computer languages have been designed by indigenous people or black people? What are the root of these things, right? My partner always tells me that Angela Davis says, if you want to talk about anything being critical, you have to grasp it at the root. So what's the root of this? What's the root of AI? Well, if we want to empower it to be more diverse and we want to train it with diverse data sets they should come from diverse people diverse brains diverse thinkers and that's not happening right now in silicon valley seattle new york london beijing the places where you expect the highest level of data engineering it's not an indigenous or black future so we're cultivating that we have people like myself who think about the applications of many of these technologies. And it's indigenous and Hawaiian because that's how my brain works, because I'm the one writing the code. I'm the one forecasting and thinking about what the the, um, sort of application of all of these tools are to empower our people. But beyond me as an individual, it's how do we source the best questions and priorities from our communities, whether they're Uh, black or indigenous or come from a historically marginalized perspective to uh, cultivate and engineer technology for the future perspectives for the future educational opportunities for the future how does this you know how do we envision it and i think that's a departure from what the current status quo is and we borrow a lot of ideas from black futurists right you bring it back to angela davis We bring it back to the Octavia Butlers, um, both of whom have participated in educational systems here in Southern California and at UCSD, but also our indigenous futurists, um, some of my favorites, and this is because I'm from Big Island, King Kamehameha himself, or many um, individuals that come from uh, Oceania, like Apele Haofa and Oscar Tamadu and uh, all kinds of people, Hinano Murphy, people that... We love to borrow and think about ideas with that have been thinking about ways to empower our our growth and development. And then it's because we're an educational institution, tra- training the next generation of people to think like futurists. So how do we train students to do these things?
0: But what's that mean? Like, um, like why is it that AI? should be made by diverse what happens in the world like how do i experience the world as just a regular person Mm. who doesn't know anything about how ai is developed what impact does it have on me if there aren't folks like you who are involved in the process and other diverse
1: so most of the things i have familiarity with are in the medical world the health world the global health world because that's my you know the kernel of my background Mm. that's where i come from and i'm not a first generation Thinker from that space, my you know, you met a lot of my family members. My aunt is a the first Native Hawaiian female colonel in the U.S. Public Health Corps, and um, and we grew up with thinking about those things. So, a lot of times, the algorithms of the of the future don't don't include our our perspectives, and I could give you some examples, like um, algorithms that are supposed to predict whether a mutation for Specific types of breast cancer. It requires a certain type of chemo. They don't work for brown or black people or indigenous people because they were all trained on data sets of white people. Right? 95% of clinical trials exclusively feature white people. So we really haven't optimized that space at all. Like it's wide open. Um, You know, automation of radiology based algorithm. So a lot, a lot of the things that I'm thinking about are in, are definitely in that space and they require improvement. And that actually, without improving them, without taking an indigenous futurist or black futurist perspective on these things, it actually will exacerbate health disparity. The gap in health disparities that already exi- exists will continue to widen. So, so that's one trajectory. But there's also uh, emerging Uh, trajectories that are going to impact people's lives in significant ways and the biggest one i think right now is climate change so right now if we think about wildfires that are raging through california and hawaii um by the way the newest wildfire on big island i don't remember last i checked i think it was like 17 so i I don't it was it wasn't a gigafire but it was really big And it was um, ignited on a military base, which shows you who's responsible, um, which is sad. But all of this is going down, and there are communities of people that know where controlled burns should be done. So, for example, if you have remote sensing technology that you can use, that means satellite. You have a satellite imagery that you can layer and look at. You can tell which areas look really, really dry and hot. Based on, based on little heat maps. You could be training an algorithm on where to do the controlled burns using indigenous knowledge systems because those are people that have been there for thousands and thousands of years. What do you think is happening? That's not what's happening. That's not how we're moving that algorithm uh, in the right direction to actually be helpful for mitigating climate change, promote climate resilience, and save thousands and thousands and thousands of people's homes we're relying on western knowledge systems that aren't working and we're paying people lots and lots of money and we're all paying for this with our taxpayers dollars right so there are just so many ways to optimize things like that and they're not happening and i mentioned that because that's a project we're working on here
0: okay so Tim, i was just gonna say i'll ask a a last question then Mm -hmm. like is that something though that you see on the horizon do you think that will happen it's and how is ifi working on
1: something like that? yeah yeah so it's like you have people who know landscapes really well and if you bring them into your control room where you're writing code and actually help them or allow them to be a partner in the development of your project as a day, as a, as the architect of how you write your code now you're actually talking about increasing the efficiency of the algorithm that you're creating, you know, of I,
0: a software that's helping to fight fires,
1: right? With like, you know, you could have a 72 hour window where you know where you need to do the burn. So by the time the fire gets there, so it's predictive, it's preventative and it's indigenous in, in nature and its origin. And those are the types of perspectives that we need to think about because you know, by the time you get to these situations, you don't want to react to gigafire, right? You know, that's not a good situation. But that's definitely something we're working on right now. And pairing the right people to work on those types of projects is, is essential. You know, other ones that we're really thinking about are this interface of uh, synthetic biology. So, so why aren't we engineering bacteria to metabolize plastics that exist in the ocean. The way we think about creating new technologies to promote climate resilience is gonna be really important. And synthetic biology offers some really unique and desperate opportunities. And it's not limited to, you know, creating synthetic soil that is flame retardant or resistant. That is uh, creating systems where people can take food wastes from economic systems like hotels and convert them directly into fertilizer to help agriculture. That is the removal and digestion of biomasses in different agricultural settings. And that is metabolizing plastics into different types of fuel that people can use right they're they're really harmful and they're rubbish and they're they're really really wreaking havoc on everything from fish to microbes to plankton to to everything in in the ocean you know how much i love the ocean and so i think it's a really great opportunity for us to remediate things mine trailings there's going to be an intense renewed interest in mining Lithium in the next few decades. Why? Because everybody wants to drive a Tesla. Also drones. Also everything that's going to require uh, next generation batteries. And those elements come from somewhere. So we need cleaner, faster lithium uh, mining techniques. Also, cellular agriculture and the creation and the utilization of synthetic biology to create foods you know chicken from cells steak from cells seafood from cells and when you start to create beef from cells it also means that you're removing the second largest biomass on planet earth in cows it also means that you're removing uh all the methane they create every time they fart and how bad that is for our atmosphere and when you remove something like that from the equation you're also removing the their utilization of that large portion of land. So back to this land back idea, it's like cellular agriculture. If used by indigenous people, it doesn't always have to be just cows. It could be cell ag for indigenous flora and fauna, taro, whatever, and how that clears up land for other things and what we do with that land. Is really important, and how we use that space to revitalize our cultures um, and heal this planet is going to be a really interesting future.
0: Thank you, KLU Dr. Fox. Oh, thank yeah. you. Yeah. yeah.
1: Thank what you very it. much for having me on here.
0: Thanks for listening to the Calag Roots podcast. If you liked what you heard, you can check out other stories like this one at www.agroots.org or on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get podcasts. And by the way, if you subscribe and rate this show, it'll help other people discover it. Now, some important acknowledgements. This podcast narration was written by me, Dr. Caroline Collins, postdoctoral fellow at UC Irvine, affiliated researcher at UC San Diego, and Calag Roots producer at the California Institute for Rural Studies. Production assistance and audio engineering was provided by Lee Schmidt, associate storyteller and researcher at the California Institute for Rural Studies. The Well interview series was made possible with support from the 11-hour project at the Schmidt Family Foundation. And finally, special thanks to our interviewee for this episode, Dr. Keolu Fox, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at UC San Diego. His indigenizing perspectives helped us reimagine future possibilities.